know. It makes okay. me think of um, there was a David Simon miniseries, Show Me a Hero, based on a, a true story of this housing controversy in Yonkers, New York, where mm. the feds had to like sue them to stop segregating their public housing up until like the present day, basically. Oh, and the, and the yeah. heroes in that, they, the, the true heroes in that miniseries are like the bureaucrats who are just like trying to find people public housing, you know? And who would have thought that that's who you think? <laughs> It's certainly not in the zeitgeist, generally speaking. Nope. nope. So, um, yeah. So we can we can talk about these things to do with Victor Shklovsky, if you so wish. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll just get us uh, started. So uh, <laughs> welcome one, welcome all. Uh, Night Rule returns. We are extremely pleased to be joined again by Professor Julie Rack. She's the Henry Marshall Tory Chair, Faculty of Arts, English and Film Studies Department, University of Alberta. Um, so glad you could join us again, Julie. Thank you. I am very happy to be a name chair for the man who did say that the job of education was to uplift the whole people. That means all of them. Mm. So I'm very pleased that I get to be here today and talk with you. Thank you. What a radical idea. Um, yeah, we'll continue. I mean, I'm going to hold this up, even though I won't be releasing this in video version because of the huge lip zit that I have going right now, which is very disappointing. Oh, that's why you, that's why you don't shave your beard. Um, Okay, but, uh, I, I, I got to remember that for myself. <laughs> um, but uh, bouncing off of, I mean, we had we had a couple of great conversations already dealing with Russian formalism, which I found really fascinating. We're kind of doing it out of order based on the, the order these articles appear in Literary Theory and Anthology, oh. edited by Julie Rifkin and Michael Ryan. But I kind of feel like Shlavsky is a good one to go to after some of the other ones, because we've talked about kind of, um, you know, we hit on Bakhtin, and uh, and kind of talking about the kind of formulas of, of storytelling, the different components. Um, and I think I think if you looked at a lot of that stuff on its own, you might think, well, you know, to tell a good story, you really just have to find the right kind of component parts and put the pieces together, you know, kind of like almost like a screenwriting guidebook or something like that, where it's like, you know, you just have to have the hero's journey, et cetera. And I feel like Shlovsky in that context, even though he came a bit earlier, kind of problematizes that in some interesting ways. Oh, so, yeah. He um, doesn't give a rat's ass about any of that. That is true. Yeah. Um, the, the essay we wanted to touch on today is called Art is Technique from 1917 by Victor mm -hmm. Shlovsky. Um, but before we start, maybe you could just give people kind of a brief overview of Shlovsky and Absolutely. kind of his background and his project. I'm very happy to. So um, Victor Shlovsky was um, a Russian literary critic and public intellectual and he lived in uh, in Russia as it was in the struggle around Bolshevism and he was actually somebody who fought on the side of the Bolsheviks so for those of you who need to be taken back in time to that um, around the time of the first world war Russia is plunged into a civil war uh, and that is against the imperialists who actually were in charge, right, and whose leader is the czar. And, um, a, you know, a small group of um, intellectuals, um, working class people working in factories, peasants, and others who were interested in overthrowing that particular regime, um, which was out now corrupt, no arguments there from anyone. Oh, sure. I mean, the czar was sending <laughs> troops to the front without, you know, guns or bullets or food. I mean, it was like yeah. the it was like the yeah. Afghan National Army or something. It was actually very similar. And I mean, these things don't change much 
right? This, you know, we might think that we're in a different era, but some things really don't. And sometimes mm-hmm. it feels like we go back there. Um, and so, yeah, in this, especially around the fall of Afghanistan, you can see some of these things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, so actually the Bolsheviks were most successful in um, spreading their point of view on the battlefields of World War I, because um, they would send people into the front lines who would go and say, hey, can I talk to you about Marx? You know, Marx has something to say about the fact that you're sitting in a hole of mud fighting a war you never intended to fight. You know, so there's a kind of... Mm. So Viktor Shklovsky was um, part of the intelligentsia, which is a special class of people in Russia that doesn't exist anywhere else at the same time. They're actually like a separate social class, and they include mm. doctors as well as, um, you know, literary, literary critics, writers, artists. Um, but also other kinds of people from the middle class who were interested in ideas. And, and we really don't have anything like that anywhere else. Mm. It's a really special uh, group of people. And when the Bolsheviks took over, they got rid of the Mensheviks, who were kind of like the middle of the road people. <laughs> yep. right? They were like, no, no, total revolution. We have to take over, right? Um, it's really Lenin who emerges from the intelligentsia as a leader. And he says that the intelligentsia have a really important role to play in thinking about how to rewrite the story of the revolution. So Viktor Shlovsky was one of those people. He actually, um, I should come back and just say a little bit about him. He actually uh, published a book that seems very much not connected to these political events called Theory of Prose, um, which is his masterwork. And Shklovsky, was actually part of a group of writers as well. I'm just looking for their name. It was, uh, oh yes, he was, uh, in 1916, he had founded Opoyas, which is Obsushestva Izichenia Poetiskova Yaskia, which is Society for the Study of Poetic Language. And he also was part of the Moscow Linguistic Circle. And with them, he helped to form what is called Russian formalism, which is the study of form as its own content. Now you might be thinking, given the uprising of events at this point, what is Shlovsky doing? And there's a couple of answers to that. There's actually an excellent article in The Nation, if you're able to ever find it, called Making Strange on Viktor Shklovsky by Ben Ehrenreich, mm. which actually talks really well about Shlovsky's influence, his beliefs, and, his, and the aftermath of those. One of the things that happens, is that once the Bolsheviks take over and the Russian Revolution is in play, very quickly, socialist realism in art and literature became the most important expression of the revolution. This was not true at the beginning, where there were all kinds of people, and I've talked about this on your show before, but for instance, Lisitsky. Um, would be an example as a visual artist who was making posters that were non-representational to try to show you what the revolution should look like or feel like, as opposed to um, doing a direct representation of, you know, brave soldiers or people like that. Mm. But very quickly that leaves, that fades away, and you get these very literal representations. And by the time Stalin takes over and becomes the leader of the Bolsheviks, technically, um, but he's really the putative, you know, the head of the Russian, the entire USSR. He is absolutely in favor of little literal representations that are heroic, and he has no time for intelligentsia 
who are interested in other ways to overthrow something. And so because of that, most of Schlossky's close friends, and that includes uh, Mayakovsky, the poet and filmmaker, um, that includes Sergei Eisenstein, mm. who is a filmmaker, um, that includes um, Osip Mandelstam, who is one of the best modernist poets, um, who was also initially supportive of the revolution, but who was put into prison. Like these people, um, you know, Anna Akhmatova, uh, who is another poet, also sympathetic initially to the ideals of the revolution, but whose, um, but whose family members are imprisoned and who writes very famous um, lyric poetry about that. Like by the time we get into the time of Stalin, most of the people that Shlovsky knew are gone. So in one way or another, they're either in exile, they've gone to France. Um, right. And that's actually how Russian formalism becomes influential mm. um, to the development of French semiotics, for example, because right. they all end up over there uh, mm -hmm. if they're lucky or they are silenced in other ways or they are imprisoned. Mm. And so Shklovsky himself um, advocated thinking about art as its own politics. He really felt that the artist should not be captive to any ideology. And this is why, because he felt that um, first the movements before um, the revolution in art were mystical. They were the, um, a lot, there was a group of people called the symbolists and they actually were influenced by writers in France, right? Specifically mm. Baudelaire. Sure. And they believed in a mystical interpretation mm. Mm. of the world through art and including things like the idea of the journey, which you were opening with. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> what you get, you know, so, so formalism was meant to disrupt that and say that is romantic claptrap and it serves a class. So we shouldn't be doing that. But mm. at the same time, Shlovsky also could see that the that things were shifting the other way towards a certain kind of realism that didn't actually think of art in its own terms. And so for him, it was actually really revolutionary to reject that as well. So mm. even though formalism, as we know it today, is seen as a very conservative thing, it wasn't for him. Mm. And so when we start thinking about um, defamiliarization or making strange, I think it's really important to remember that for him, this was radical and that mm. he understood himself to be saying no to Stalinism, for example, mm. no to art being um, just um, ideological first or content first. It should have, it should exist outside of its own terms. Mm. So that's really, that's really some background about him. He died in the 1980s mm. um, and, uh, and really was uh, not regarded as terribly interesting by that point <laughs> in Russia. He stayed in Russia and he was not, uh, by the eighties, he was really regarded as a bit of a fossil, but you know, I don't think that's terribly fair of him, you know, of people. And it's really important to rethink his legacy and that's what you're doing right now. So. Well, I mean, a career a that spans from like the, the early 19, like the 19 teens to the eighties. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, yeah. You're, you're probably going to look a little aged after a while. Yeah, I mean, just reading, rereading this essay yeah. after so many years, it's it's impossible to not see it as 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 quite revolutionary, quite radical in its um yep. in its outlook. And I'll just um, what I'll do is I'll maybe just read a little bit from it here, and you can just jump in whenever you want. Sure. Um, to uh, <clears throat> to kind of unpack some of it. So this is from Viktor Shlovsky again, 
Literary Theory and Anthology, Rifkin and Ryan, this is page 17 from yeah. the essay, Art as Technique. I think there's an alternate translation for this as well, like art as um, method or something like that is another yeah, way to translate it. Yeah, because it would be technologia. So yeah. it would be technique in Russian can mean both things. Right. Um, okay, we'll just start on page 17. Mm -hmm. If we start to examine the general laws of perception, we see that as perception becomes habitual, it becomes automatic. Mm -hmm. Thus, for example, all of our habits retreat into the area of the unconsciously automatic. If one remembers the sensations of holding a pen or of speaking a foreign language for the first time and compares that with his feelings of performing the action for the 10,000th time, he will agree with us. Such habituation, such habituation explains the principles by which in ordinary speech, we leave phrases unfinished and words half expressed. In this process, ideally realized in algebra, things are replaced by symbols. Mm. By this algebraic method of thought, we apprehend objects only as shapes with, with only as shapes which are imprecise. We do not see them in their entirety, but rather recognize them by their main characteristics. Mm -hmm. We see the object as though it were enveloped in a sack. We know what it is by its configuration, but we only see its silhouette. The object perceived thus in the manner of prose perception, very interesting phrase, yep. fades and does not leave, leave even a first impression. Ultimately, even the essence of what it was is forgotten. Um, I have so like that makes me think yeah. of so many different things you know I mean <laughs> yeah. he's talking about cognition he's talking about neurology I mean yeah. when when you think about when he, when he talks about seeing things just based on their characteristics I mean I'm, I'm, I'm flashing back to high school biology and yep. studying the way the brain works but also when he talks about how things don't even reach the threshold of cognition when they're so automatic you know I think of how when I went to go see Star Wars The Force Awakens my brain just turned off because I just, I, I'd seen everything in this story done before. Yep. And I yep. literally couldn't remember a, a single thing about the film when I walked out, although it was yep. well made. Um, and I think, I think it's really interesting to, yep. like this is a very revolutionary nugget in and of itself to talk about, about, about things becoming unconsciously automatic, you know? I yep. mean, that, that really invokes a lot of different things. Yeah, one of the things that evokes for me when I rehear that passage again, it's so nice to hear it again, is uh, stereotyping. So in a way you could say, okay, when you think you have the, or you think you have the vague outline of a thing, you think you've got it. You think you know what that is, but there can be, but usually the argument against stereotyping is to know things in their fullness. Um, so that if you don't, if, you know, because the stereotype is literally a machine that we used to make impressions. That's literally what it is. That's what a stereotype is. And so we use the word now to say, well, we just know things by their Vagueness, their vague outline because we can't know everything Im immediately or right away and what and what Shlovsky is actually saying here is that you never know them <laughs> because you get because of the force of habit you get used to thinking that you know the object and so you know if, for those of your listeners out there who understand or have familiarity with phenomenology that mm. intense pit of despair for me because it's like so, <laughs> uh, always so hard to think about yeah but a lot of phenomenologists talk about the object that way. They're like, oh, you, you grasp it because you only see this part of it, but then you just infer the rest of it. And mm. what Shklovsky is saying is, do you even know that much? <laughs> mm. Yeah, fair question. Back in the 1920s, he's saying, do you even, are you sure? 
how would you know that? Yeah. Right? You only know these things this one way. And he is not the only person to say this, to go way back in time. Certainly William Blake would also have said that, would have said, mm. how do you know the world? It's only enclosed by your senses five. Like you only know, you only know this certain bunch of things and you think that's it. And how would you actually know that? And so, mm. so you know, in that sense, it's, even though I don't think these two thinkers have much in common, they have that in common. Mm. Um, the idea that you, well, how would you know? And, and so for Shklovsky, because um, Russian formalism as he develops with it is meant to be a rigorous method. How are you going to know something um, beyond its vague outlines? Or what does he have it? The object is in a bag. Yeah. <laughs> and we only know it by its silhouette. Yeah. How do you yeah. open the bag? Um, and, and see something or rip the bag open or, you know, you think you see the whole thing, but you just see the bag, right? You know, I like, I like the way that he talks about that. Yeah. So, you know, and so what he's going to do is he's going to say it's going to be ostrenenye, right? It's going to be the only way that you can get there is to not know the object the way you've known it before. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think... Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I was no, just going to say. Okay. I mean, and he 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 does like he just cites Tolstoy brilliantly to make this point. Yeah, um, yeah it's famous. But um, so I'll just I'll keep going. Um, sure. This is this is uh, Shlavsky again. This is page eighteen. Tolstoy makes the familiar seem strange by not naming the familiar object. He describes an object as though he were seeing it for the first time. Mm -hmm. In describing something, he avoids the accepted names of its parts and instead names corresponding parts of other objects. Mm -hmm. Tolstoy uses this technique of defamiliarization constantly. The narrator of Kolstomer, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, for example, is a horse, and it is the horse's mm -hmm. point of view rather than, a rather than a person's that makes the content of the story unfamiliar. Um, here is how the horse regards the institution of private property. Um, and I'll just jump right into this brilliant passage sure. from Tolstoy. And this is again in the voice of a horse. <laughs> I understood well what they said about whipping in Christianity, but then I was absolutely in the dark. What was the meaning of, quote, his own or, quote, his cult? From these phrases, I saw that people thought there was some connection between me and the stable. At the time, I simply could not understand the connection. Only much later, when they separated me from the other horses, did I begin to understand. But even then, I could not see what it meant when they called me man's property. The words, my horse, referred to me, a living horse, and seemed as strange to me as the words, my land, my air, my water. Mm -hmm. But the words made a strong impression on me. I thought about them constantly, and only after the most diverse experiences with people did I understand, finally, what they meant. They meant this. In life, People are guided by words, not by deeds. It is not so much that they love the possibility of doing or not doing something, as it is the possibility of speaking with words agreed on among themselves about various topics. Such are the words my and mine, which apply to, which apply to different things, creatures, objects, even to land, people, and horses. They agree that only one may say mine, that one may only say mine about this, that or the other thing. And the one who says mine about the greatest number of things is according to the game which they've agreed to among themselves, the one who they consider the most happy. I don't know the point of all of this, <laughs> but it's true. 
The actions of men, at least those whom I've had dealings with, are guided by words, ours by deeds. Um, and I mean, you can think about so many other literary examples of defamiliarization. Um, you know, there's there's Jonathan Swift, I think, would be another pretty good example yep. of modest proposal. Um, and really, when you think about it, I mean, cinema is just chock full as well of, I mean, ultimately mm -hmm. showing a perspective that is is unfamiliar to the audience. And, you know, yep. just by nature of following a certain character around you, you get into their head and you and you kind of that's at least if it's a well told story and well articulated you kind of see the world a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. um, but like, what do you, what, what can you say as to like why this was such a critical kind of passage for Slavsky to, to cite here? I think it's because of that thing that you read just before by Slavsky, where it's like, he says, it's not, he doesn't, Tolstoy does not use the usual words that you would use. And he also makes connections you would not normally make. Mm. Right. And so here, if we hear this passage again, I mean, here's the thing. This is, to be honest, meta. Tolstoy is thinking about what a horse would do, but we don't really know what a horse would do <laughs> in true. some ways. But he's decided to do it by not using anything the usual. So he says, mm. OK, what is his own, his cult? So to get he gets at the idea of capitalist possession, that possession is a problem. And he does it by saying, how does the horse learn? Hmm, there's only one way a horse can learn that, and it's through experience. So he has to experience all these different people. And, you know, there's some connection, but what is it? So he deliberately refuses to say anything about ideology or anything the way humans would talk mm. about this. And instead he says, oh, you know, what is, it means it's actually about me though, but how? humans can't own anything can they yeah <laughs> you can hear a lot of indigenous thinking in canada coming through that right like where they're like what do you mean my land totally. like what <laughs> but i mean right? you never you never could have started down this path if you were just telling kind of a standard horse story so to speak where it's like you just well, be yeah. writing about the normal things someone would write about a horse you know well like sure and like a good example would be anna sewell's black beauty which was written as a you know as an animal rights book right that's what black beauty was and but that that book actually doesn't have a horse talking like a horse would it's actually what a person would be like right and that's the whole point in that book if you imagine that a horse has thoughts and feelings and has friends and you know and has happy thoughts and sad thoughts and can do things that a human can do you won't hurt it right, right. you won't hurt the horse but here you have a horse who doesn't who thinks who has cognition but who doesn't understand what people are doing. And so the horse has to figure it out. So I think that Sklovsky would say, black beauty doesn't have this kind of thing happening. This is a situation where Tolstoy's decided, what is the other really gonna do? And, you know, and so it's, this is the role in Sklovsky of defamiliarization. And this is what he says art can do that other kinds of language can't do. Mm. Right. So this is the word. Sometimes in English we say this. Yeah, that's it. That's the word. And it means to make strange. Mm. So so for Shklovsky, the art, the purpose of art was to make things unfamiliar so that you would re-experience them in another way. Very famously, he said it makes the stone stony. Mm. 
you can say all kinds of things about a rock, but maybe, but what art can do is give you an experience of it that you might not have another way, like to see it a different way. And so creative language for him did something different. And here you can see it. You can see what it is to be a horse, but you can also see that from a horse's point of view, private property is nonsense. Right, yeah, <laughs> totally. Right. And you could say, well, and who else has written like that? Well, obviously, a lot of slave narrative in the United States also has these thoughts. Mm. I have cognition. I don't think of myself as property. Property is stupid. Yeah, well, <laughs> right? it makes me think of uh, there's there's a there's a beautiful passage in Huckleberry Finn where uh, Huck has seen because he's talking about how Jim, I think the character's name is Jim, is, you know, cries every yeah. night because he misses his family. Uh -huh. And there's this, there's a scene, there's a scene where Huckleberry's thinking to himself, he's like, well, I guess, you know, I guess black people have feelings as well. It doesn't make sense. It's not what I've been taught, but I guess it's so. And yep. it's just a heartbreaking moment where the oh kind of God, humanization right? is just like so apparent, but also, you know, in the same book, when he, he, he st uh, there's a scene where he, Huckleberry feels like he needs to turn in Jim because it's the quote unquote right thing to do because that's what he's been taught. And he decides, you know what? even though this is what I've been taught, I'm not gonna do it and I'll just go to hell if I have to go to hell by making right. this moral choice. Right. Um, and I think that's that's definitely an element of Twain's writing. I mean, really honestly, like the mm. the, the number of, of when, when you think about defamiliarization, once, once you kind of pull at that thread, you realize how many great works of art there are that are really, this is what they're doing. They're yeah. taking something, they're making you look at it in a completely different way, even though it's something you might see every day, it might be a story you've heard a thousand times, you know, there, there's a lot of people who will take a familiar story and then really like flip it around. And that can be really yeah. powerful, although yeah. and also get a little bit indulgent at times. Sure. Um, but just kind of waking people up out of their everyday, you know, prose mm -hmm. language kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so this is what Shklovsky means by habituation. It's like um, you learn to brush your teeth every single day. So eventually you just don't even have the experience. Right. So, so, you know, and, and on the one hand, you could just say that's just fine. You can just keep doing it. <laughs> Your teeth will get clean. <laughs> sure. Great. But if you want to live as fully as possible, you, this is, you should experience everything as much as you can. So mm. for him, this is what I really think he would say. Yeah. So because of that, you know, and, and also you can, totalitarianism is about repetition for him of any variety. Mm. And so if, so if you if you become habituated to doing the same things all the time and you're not thrown out of your situation, you can't reflect on it critically. And then you're somehow you're you're just living a lesser life. And so that's that's his argument for why art is something that gives you a fuller life. I mean, it's an incredibly revolutionary thought. I mean, ultimately, yeah, it was for at the time, certainly, because, as I've said, you know, Stalin did not believe that mm. he believed you had to control interpretation. Yeah. Right. But even just looking at like contemporary life, I mean, how much how much of our thought and our even just collective action, our social life, our philosophy, our ideology is just comes right down to repetition and conformity and kind a of lot. people walking in unison like penguins without really like thinking about things in like a different way. Like, I mean, uh, sure. so much. I mean, I, I just I, I feel as though this has tremendous tremendous implications for for politics in in so many different ways even just sure. political language political speech um mm -hmm. personhood oh yeah you know? i mean I, you know i didn't watch the recent leaders debate in canada 
Mm. Um, and one of the reasons why I decided not to was that I, you know, and I, and I heard a lot about it later and I thought it is just an echo chamber. There is a, there was no possibility of these people actually talking to each other, actually dropping everything and going, let's just talk about what actually matters. It's like, we can't have this anymore. And it's a performance for some kind of, you know, social media repetition. But to me, that's not, that's not good. That's not a good sign in a democracy because we can't have this discussion about much of anything. Uh, what we get is, a, you, know, as, you know, as we face a huge health crisis is a lack of belief in expertise and a repetition of things that the algorithms and social media bring to you yeah. on either, on any, on, in any point of view that's being held by this stuff. And to me, it's, that's not a good thing. Well, I mean, and it's so going to be what is the role less of less art less... in our own time, and I believe yeah. it should be to be able to to stop us from doing that. You yeah. know, I mean, I wonder even if you looked at like visual art though as well. Like, there's definitely a kind of repetition of conformity. I had a good friend of mine who's an artist and curator, Mo Salami, on a few weeks ago, and mm. he's talked for a long time about how, you know, obviously our galleries are are struggling and probably at death's door right now, but really a lot yep. of them have just been doing the same thing year after year. Mm -hmm. of kind of uh, uh, the, like kind of a knee jerk lip servicey kind of pointing towards uh, representation and diversity and people's different lived experience, but but very like limited and, and apolitical ultimately as well. Yeah, just kind of like here it's it's kind of the diversity Olympics and we're going to allow people only a certain oh. type of person to exhibit and only a certain type of critique of the mm -hmm. art and it can never get too political in terms of actually grasping at the root or kind of yeah. calls to action or a different way of like looking at because I mean maybe it's just mass media and and it's kind of technological age we live know. in but I feel as though the the kind of automation of thought and habituation of thought has has probably only the intensity has only gone up probably in recent years I don't know I mean I I can I know what I feel like sometimes as a as a teacher mm. and I would say that um automization is something that um neoliberal uh, trains of thought want that it's so much easier sure. and I, I think that that's and it's I think that's that's something that I see a lot of I don't know whether there's more or less of it but I would say you're right that it is pervasive and in art discourse in this country we have a lot of it yeah yeah and I I don't want a world where there's no art I don't want a world where there's no writing <laughs> you know well, no, where no there's art no that's, performance. No and so art that's, that's not the point for me. You know? But yeah, but yeah. I don't want a world where there's only three points of view and we must have more diversity and that's all we need to do. That we just have to have more. And it's, you know, I I am part of a I am part of a small group of people who would like things to be a lot different, especially in writing. Um, you know, and, and I don't always think that um that mainstream institutions respond terribly well to mm. calls for justice. I don't think that they're made to do that. And that would include the one I work for. <laughs> mm, mm. If you're not thinking critically about this stuff, then it's gonna determine you. <laughs> Maybe you're right. Victor Sklosky is who we should be thinking about, even though he's like the last person I think that that you know <laughs> often that we would want to think about because he actually advocated independent thinking, mm. and he wanted he wanted that, and he said and he said a society without it is going to atrophy, and he mm. pretty much pretty much what did happen to where he was living. That's what did happen where he was. 
Yeah, it reminds me of uh, we were, when we talked about uh, Mikhail Bakhtin last time and how yeah. he talked about the novel really being like a, there being a, a requisite for it, which is a vibrant kind of mm -hmm. fully featured fleshed out society and culture. Yep. Um, makes me wonder how many great novels are being written or published these days. Um, <laughs> not well. so sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's that's he's it's it's a good it's a good one to touch on as we kind of close the book on Russian formalism. I don't know if we want to go into kind of new criticism next. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe we'll I thinking maybe since we're talking about a lot of Russian exiles in Paris, the next discussion we could we could start with uh, De Saussure and, and dive into that whole quagmire. Oh, want to do that? I mean, I I I, I found I, I found him fascinating personally. I know it's a little bit <laughs> maybe a little dry or a little bit difficult for people, but um, like there's a great line in Sopranos. I think it's season two or three where Meadow Meadow Sopranos in college, and her grades aren't that good, and and she just says to her mother, "You try taking intro to semiotics, okay? Stuff is not easy." <laughs> you try taking intro. You <laughs> we absolutely could. Um, another thing to think about is is narratology a thing? And if so, what? I, I did mm. recently uh, write an article about life writing and narratology, and I had to actually read a lot of narratology. And semiotics is one of the things that's part of it, mm. right? And uh, it has positives and negatives as an area of study um, for me. One of the positives is how rigorous they are. And that they have started to try to think about transmedia studies and other kinds of ways of understanding narrative beyond just thinking about novels. Hmm. Um, and there's some really interesting things in there to think about. Um, there are some negatives in that it's really esoteric. And mm. it's exactly like what happens in The Sopranos. The stuff is really, uh, it can feel like a small garden and you have to really work to get in there and then you can't get out. And so that, that to me can be a problem for narratology. And so I actually did write an article that was both saying, okay, here's some things that are really great, but here's some things in my own field that you're leaving out and that you don't want to think about. And you know, you should be thinking about them. Mm. right particularly in the world that we live in right now and so uh i that kind of both and way of approaching a subject is really interesting to me so you know that would be my suggestion too is to think through uh some of those both and places in formalism mm. if or semiotics or structuralism um one of my my colleagues his name is uh philippe lejeune he was actually a really important person for the formation of structuralism and then he decided to throw it all up and do something else <laughs> <laughs> awesome wow because he got interested in diaries and what do they really do and so he decided to create a different method of studying them that wasn't structuralist so he's mm. kind of like you know people like that can really tell you a lot so mm. you know there's a lot of, there's a lot of them around um so you know gerard Jeanette was somebody who was a structuralist worked with saucier and other people and and was a good was good at thinking through its limits and its possibilities mm. so i'd say those people like really interesting for us now especially Jeanette's thoughts about paratext now now that we're talking about structuralism i'm beginning to realize what a huge kind of like can of worms that's going to be i mean i've always wanted to go back to it a little bit because i think actually yeah. some of the post-structuralists uh, oh. are like obviously really interesting to talk about but like i you know i've, I've actually talked to friends before who say, no, 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 we just have to go back to structuralism and build our own structures. Mm -hmm. um, maybe if, if we don't yeah. want to completely dive into that whole quagmire, 
we could do we could do close reading and new criticism first because that way we could just we could just cite one single poem we don't have to make a lot of photocopies and it's a lot easier um but it has we it has could. me thinking actually I mean, yeah. is is close reading like what is it i mean you question. could do that and uh, ask yourself because because the the men of the 50s were very certain that they knew what close reading was all about and it was about science mm. and that turned out to be untrue but what happened in english studies was that close reading turned into an invisible method that you don't even have to think about mm. and um i've often thought to myself that i would like to write something about close reading and whether it's a thing or not and the reason why i mean it's such a it's such an esoteric thing to do right but no, 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 yeah. because um there's some philosophers in the United States who particularly have written with, with sorrow about the, the decline of close reading and they miss it. And I have been thinking, what is the texture of that sorrow? What does it mean to say that you are sad that nobody wants to talk about the well for the well-wrought urn, you know? Right. And yeah. I think that it's not right to think that. I actually think that you can close read a lot of things. You can close read documents. You can close read um, police reports. You can close read, you could use this technique for all kinds of things. Um, I like to study trashy crap. And frankly, trashy crap has a lot to yield up, but close reading may not be the only way to do that, right? So we have mm. to think about what is close reading? What has it been used for? And maybe it's been used inappropriately because it was applied to certain only certain kinds of objects so there's always that um post-structuralists um in the united states used close reading and ones in europe wouldn't so there's mm. also that you know where somebody like uh oh i'm trying to think jeffrey hartman somebody like that um would be someone who would say yes you can absolutely use this tool for deconstruction and somebody like uh jacques derrida would not say that mm. Would, well, would be like no you don't you, you no 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 i'd i'd really i'd really love to read that essay if you write it like yeah exactly like okay. what 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 are people missing about it because i think i think i and this is on my mind because i saw someone a, a journalist uh who i really like on twitter saying how he saw he was seeing all these people online doing quote unquote close readings of movies and whatnot for their podcast yeah and he was saying but like are they really doing close readings no they're not they're not looking <laughs> for contradiction so no yeah yeah <laughs> no so, they're I just mean, saying here's what i think about this thing which is fine mm. but that's not close reading no mm. well maybe before yeah before we dive into the 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 difficulties of structuralism and and mm. semiotics and whatnot the next time we can we can pencil in our minds a discussion of close reading we'll call it a close reading of close reading um, <laughs> that sounds meta enough that's good yeah and again that'll be nice because again and this is kind of an inside joke we won't have to we won't have to copy too many textbooks we can just hand out some some one-page exactly. poems and whatnot hand out a poem it's um, so easy you don't even need to research it's great totally which <laughs> <laughs> great uh, it's so true. Listen, I know I we're think up we should close read Donald Trump too. I think that would be oh, a lot man. of fun. Anything yeah, like because be just any phrase he uses is ripe for contradiction. That's so, so true. That's so true. Excellent. Contradiction and paradox. Um, I'll just give you the last word. I know we're up against the clock here a little bit. Yes. You've probably got a class to go to. Yes, I do. Um, anything you wanted to uh, share with people out there who are curious about these things, maybe somewhere they want to they want to go read more. Any admonishments for yeah. the Canadian or American voters out there? Uh, admonishments. <laughs> I'm probably not qualified for admonishments at this mm. point. 
I would say, um, okay, so Shklovsky, most of his books are not translated into English. Mm. Um, but if you are interested in reading more about him, you can find things online, certainly, but also I'm just yeah, I'll, I'll link to that article from The Nation. I found it. So that's yeah, that's yeah. a really good place because I think that that guy, Aaron Reich, actually spoke really well about Shklovsky and about what Shklovsky could mean. And I, I think that that's, it's pretty, it's pretty good. Um, I would say though, also um, the famous work is the theory of prose, which is an essay collection. And that's where you'll find the essay that you were quoting from mm. um, as a translation. But it's also worth thinking about a sentimental journey memoirs because that's where he really talked in later in life as the nation article will say, he was reconsidering his legacy um, he wrote a really interesting book called Bowstring on the dissimilarity of the similar, which is worth seeing because there he reconsiders what he was doing. And he said, you know, I advocated that art did not have to be connected in, intimate, intimately to life, but everything I wrote bled. Mm. <laughs> anyway, but it's like, what? <laughs> so if you're interested in this guy, because he was an independent thinker and, you know, and, and went way beyond some arid formalism, he was really dynamically interested in his world. I think he's, those things are worth seeing. And Fantastic. Well, Julie, I'm so glad we made this happen. Uh, yeah, always super always fun. Nice. Always, always love opening up this old book and uh, revisiting some of the kind of palaces of uh, past intellectual thought. Dusty, always, dusty things. That's uh, what I we're mean, doing here. <laughs> but honestly, like just in terms of people having exposure to this, it's it's still pretty cutting edge. I really feel as though. Weirdly, like, yes. I mean, it's um, interesting. It's like we've opened up this trunk and we've got these old things in and it turns out that they actually have a lot to say to right now. So I really thank you, Isaac, because it's an unusual thing to do. And, yeah. uh, and I hope your listeners love it. Oh, I'm sure they do. I'm, I get great feedback on this stuff. Um, okay, well, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. I'll, you. uh, I'll send you an email. We'll hook something up in a, a month or two or something like that whenever your schedule mm -hmm. allows and we'll We'll delve into some right. uh, some T.S. Eliot or something and do some close readings and we'll do try, it. Try and, and, may, <laughs> and may democracy prevail in our time. Indeed. <laughs> That's all I'll <Indeed>. say. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree.